Well, Lent is behind us, and we are now three weeks into the Easter season, though um, judging by the weather, it feels more like we're three weeks into Advent. But nonetheless, I, I want to take a few minutes and go back to the liturgy of Holy Thursday night, if, if just for a minute. Back in the day, it was the custom in my parish church, north of here, seven-and-a-half-hour drive north, to choose 12 altar boys from the upper grades for the mandantum on Holy Thursday, the washing of the feet. They wore special red cassocks that were used only once a year on Holy Thursday. And after the gospel, they all sat across the sanctuary in front of the altar steps. Uh, Monsignor Scheringer, the pastor, assisted by a deacon, would move from one to the other washing their feet, only one foot, the right foot. And as he finished, he would throw down a 50-cent piece, not place it quietly, mind you, on the steps. He would throw it down. And the sound of those 12 coins hitting the cold green marble of the sanctuary steps would ring through the packed church, sending shivers up your spine or down your spine uh, for whatever reason. But it always reminded me of the 30 pieces of silver that Judas was paid for betraying Christ. Now, one assumes that Judas also had his feet washed uh, Holy Thursday night. I often wonder what might have gone through Judas' mind as Jesus bent down before him, performing the service of a household slave for a man who had already sold him. The name Judas is synonymous with betrayal. It's what we call someone who betrays the trust and friendship of another. And it's likely we have all had at least one person in our personal histories on whom we could pin that name. In Dante's Inferno, the lowest level of hell, Circle 9, the circle is the circle of treachery. It's populated by the souls of those... uh, who betrayed the special bonds of love and hospitality. Cain, the murder of Abel, is there, though most people who read that part of Dante think of Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri. This is the circle where Dante would have put Benedict Arnold, Robert Hansen, or maybe even John Wayne Gacy, had he known of them. Circle 9 has four levels of increasing gravity, The fourth and innermost he calls Judeca, after Judas Iscariot, because here, eternally frozen in ice, are the three great traitors in human history, Brutus and Cassius, who conspired to murder Julius Caesar, and, of course, Judas Judas Iscariot, who conspired in the murder of Jesus Christ. Well, did I say three figures? Actually, there's a fourth, Lucifer himself, whose presence haunts the minds and hearts of the loveless. Frozen in black ice, Lucifer slowly devours the other three. It's Dante's image of a satanic Eucharist in which betrayal, suspicion, hate all feed on each other. There's something neat and tidy about blaming Christ's death on Judas. It appeals to our sense of order. It makes the complicated and the difficult easier to understand, and most important of all, it absolves us from personal blame. But anyone reading the Gospels will discover something altogether different. 
The stories of Jesus' appearance to his disciples after the resurrection are models of two things. First, recognition. They all have to learn how to recognize him again. And second, reconciliation. Recognition because they, the apostles, have to learn how to read the now hidden presence of Jesus with the eyes of faith and reconciliation because these same apostles must also learn to accept that they too betrayed their master and who, more than all the others, with the single exception of Judas Iscariot, qualifies for the title of betrayer of Jesus Christ than Simon Peter, who three times denied him. Now, this fact must have been a great embarrassment for the early church, and it is significant for the authenticity of the gospel accounts that the gospel makes no attempt to cover up or deny this fact, as you can clearly see in today's gospel, where Jesus works to reconcile his failed disciples to himself, beginning with Peter. And one tiny Greek word in the gospel tells us that it's also something more. That word is anthrakia. It sounds like the name of a foot disease or maybe even a planet in the Star Wars films. But I'm reasonably certain that all of us have at least some personal experience with anthrakia on our own planet, especially if you have ever cooked burgers on a grill. The word means a charcoal fire. And it's found only twice in the entire New Testament. And both times, it's in the Gospel of John. Once in today's passage, the other charcoal fire was three chapters earlier, the one burning outside the high priest's residence during the trial of Christ. Pilate stood there, uh, Peter stood there, warming himself, and three times denied that he knew Jesus, the Galilean. The use of this word in those two passages cannot be an accident, not merely because it connects Peter's rehabilitation in today's gospel with his betrayal on Holy Thursday night, but also because it shares the same word, anthrakia, with another famous passage, not in the New Testament now, but in the Old Testament. You have to page all the way back to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, where the prophet has a vision of God gloriously enthroned in the temple, and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips living among an unclean people, for my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. An angel appears and takes a burning coal and anthrakia and from the altar and says to him, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sins are forgiven. Now, the Passion accounts that we heard on Palm Sunday and Good Friday simply do not give us only information about the death of Jesus Christ. They do give that. Pilate's name appears there for an important reason. But in addition to information, they address themselves never to neutral audiences. Christ is not just a victim of the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's not just a victim of the crowd that clamored for his death, or Pilate who sentenced him, or Judas who sold him, or Peter and the other disciples who denied him and abandoned him. Everyone is complicit 
in Christ's death. We are all, to some degree or other, his betrayers. What Peter learns around a charcoal fire on the beach, you and I learn every time we begin Mass with a penitential rite, or in the Easter season with a sprinkling rite. And that lesson is that there are no uninvolved bystanders in Christ's death. He has suffered at our hands, too. And this means he is also our victim. If the resurrection appearances of Christ are models of recognition and reconciliation, then so, too, is the Eucharist. We recognize Christ present in the consecrated bread and wine. Like Peter, we who are complicit in his death become his companions in the literalist sense of the word companion. It means those who break bread with one another. And like Isaiah, who received the burning coal, we eat and drink his true flesh and blood, and he says to us, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins forgiven.